we're doing something a little unusual in that we're splitting up the passages. Uh, we're going to be in the end of chapter 3 this morning, then we'll be in uh, the later portion of chapter 4, which is so we can treat uh, love as, uh, as the theme and uh, keep that in context. It's a little odd if you look at the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, you've got Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian believers about being loving. And then if you go to chapter 4, verse 9, he gets right back into that same theme. And it's like sandwiched in between there is uh, the rest of chapter 4, the first half of chapter 4, which is about lust. You've got love, lust, and love. And we're going to cut lust out of the center this morning and focus on love in these two passages. So we're sewing them together. If you remember, too, it's been a while, but when we started 1 Thessalonians, we said that this is a letter, it's an epistle, that starts and ends, it bookends with the themes of faith, hope, and love. You see that trio of words, that holy trinity, we called it earlier, at the beginning of the book and then again in chapter 5. And then throughout the epistle, you'll see each one of these highlighted. So the last time we looked at this in... November or so, we highlighted in chapter 3 that issue of faith, how important and vital it was. That was Paul's key concern for these folks. Uh, We've already looked at portions of the theme of hope in chapter 1, the hope of Christ's return. We see that again in chapters 4 and 5. This morning, Paul takes the context of love and fleshes it out a little bit. So 1 Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 11, Paul's prayer, then we'll jump into chapter 4. Paul says, May our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. If you remember, this was a bit of an issue. Paul was separated from them, didn't want to be, so he starts this prayer with the prayer to rejoin them. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. That's Paul's prayer, end of chapter 3. In chapter 4, starting at verse 9 through 12, Paul continues, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed... You do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Look at, look at this uh, both passages from several different vantage points. The first is a word Paul uses, which I'll use throughout here. If you look in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, May your love for each other and everyone abound. Then if you look in chapter 4 at verse 10, he says, um, But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. Excel and abound both come from the same Greek root, parasuo. And this is the definition of this term. To have abundance, more than enough, overflow, to have an excessive amount of something ranging from moderate excess to a very great degree of excess. So when Paul says excel in love or abound in love, hopefully in your mind the thought is something like this. There's a cup and love is filling it up and overflowing. It's not just a little, it's a lot. It's excessive and it's overflowing. It's so much love that it sort of can't be contained in whatever vessel you stick out there for. You know, 
uh, oftentimes if you're in school or in, in other venues of life, you ask someone, what do I have to do to pass? Or, you know, the question is sort of, how little can I do and be okay? Well, this is the flip side. Paul's prayer for them related to love is, we don't want you, he says in prayer, to measure love in little drafts or drams. We don't want you to think about being careful with how loving you are. We don't want you to aim for the minimum. Paul says his prayer for them is that love in their life and through them would be this overflowing abundance. It'd be that their cups can't hold it all in. It just spills out all over. So Paul's prayer is, may your love be so abounding that you can't contain it. And you spill that over, not in little bits, but in lots to everyone around you. This is a kind of love, it's not half-hearted, it's not aiming for the, mid, the minimum. It's love abounding, excelling, overflowing. And also, you know, in our culture, if we say the term love, we're normally talking about a feeling, an emotion. But you know, typically that's not the New Testament or indeed the biblical concept. Love is as much a verb as it is anything else. So although we talk about love maybe as an attitude of mind, we're really talking about an attitude that moves us to action. So it's not just that we say, uh, I love you. It's not just words. In fact, look at 1 John 3.18. John says there, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And he doesn't mean don't tell people you love them. But he means don't just leave love at this level of I say something, but that I do something. So Paul's prayer is that you overflow with love and the love is understood to be not a happy feeling, but an action. You're moved to help other people, some close and some further away. At verse 9 in chapter 4, Paul says that love is so much a fruit of the person of God that he doesn't even have to tell the Thessalonian believers to do this even though He is. That is that love is so much a part of who God is and what He's like that the Thessalonians already know this. He's just reminding them and He's raising the ante perhaps a little bit in their life. He says you're already doing these things but abound or excel still more. So think of this. If you say, how does God Himself teach me? How do I know as a Christian? How did they know as new Christians apart from Paul telling them that God wanted them to be loving to others, I think of a couple things. One is Jesus, God incarnate on the earth, talked about love as a commandment, and then He modeled it also. So if we're just thinking about God teaching them, God taught them in the person of Jesus Himself. Passages like John 15, 17, Jesus says, This I command you, that you love one another. This is huge. You know, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll obey me. And His key commandment is, Love others. So God tells us love others. But also, 1 John 3.16, John there says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In other words, when I read the Scriptures about God incarnate, Jesus here on the earth, I see an example of this love, this laying my life down for someone else. And 1 John says that's our example. So God taught the Thessalonians, and God teaches us today, both through His Word directly and through Jesus' words specifically, but also through His example. But then beyond that, and I think probably what Paul had in mind here, is that if the Holy Spirit of God resides in you, the God who is love, 1 John says elsewhere, 
If the Holy Spirit's in you, loving should become a part of who and what you are because the Holy Spirit's in you to reproduce the nature and character of Christ himself. So in Galatians 5, we're told that the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, those characters of God and of Christ that are reproduced in us by the Holy Spirit, the first one mentioned is love. In fact, back in John 13 again, Jesus said love was to be so characteristic of those who knew him that they would be identified as his followers by the display of their love. So John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is sort of mind-blowing for me today. If you, if you assess your own life or if you ask the people that know you, uh, how loving am I? Do you know I'm a follower of Christ based on my love? That's a pretty searching question. How many people today know we are Christians by our love? Jesus says it would be so, so common a trait in his followers that they would be known for that value alone, that characteristic alone. So Paul prays on the theme of love. He starts by praying for them that their love would abound and excel, that their love wouldn't be little, it wouldn't be meager, it wouldn't be small, but it would be overflowing love. They're loving already, he says, but let that love become this overflowing love, greater love instead. On a practical level along this line, um, if you don't prepare yourself in your own mind to be loving, you probably won't be loving. Very practical level. For instance, if we... Here, we're in church on Sunday morning. Someone talks to us about being loving. And then we go home. And someone asks me to take out the trash. And I'm doing something else. Or um, someone tells me they need me to stop that important thing I'm doing right now and come help them. What's my first response? And what's your first response? You're doing something. You're going to be a loving person. You're going to be known by the fruit of love. And then someone interrupts your reverie and says, I need you to do something for me. I need you to quit thinking about love. I need you to come take the dishes, put the dishes away or take the trash out. What's your first response? Is it, oh, sure, that'd be great. Love to, love to serve you, love to love you. It's probably not for most of us most of the time. If we're going to be loving on a very practical level, we have to, in our own head, tell ourselves it's okay to be interrupted. So that if I tell myself it's okay that I'm interrupted, I'm doing this important work, I've got ten things going on in my mind, and someone asks me if I can do something, it's okay to stop and say, yes, I can do that for you. Or I might have to say, uh, give me five minutes and I'll, I'll be there. Just to say this, on a practical level, if you, don't, if you don't arm yourself with the attitude beforehand, you won't be loving when the time comes. We are selfish creatures. And God's transforming us slowly, bit by bit over time. And love is one of those areas He's doing the transformation process. But on a practical level, we've got to tell ourselves that's what we're aiming for. And then we've got to remind ourselves again and again. Or else when the opportunity comes to be loving, which means to be focused on the needs of someone else, not me, we won't be if we're not already thinking about it, if we haven't already in our own head given ourselves permission to be interrupted, as my wife Kathy likes to say. It's okay if I'm interrupted. That's part of being loving. 
excelling or abounding in love, I've told myself, it's okay, I can be interrupted, you're more important than the task I'm doing right now. We've got to be forearmed in our thoughts on this. Love has a couple of values that Paul mentions here. One in chapter 3, he says at verse 13, Love prepares us to see Christ, uh, whether in death or at His return to the earth. So he says in 3.13, In his prayer, may he establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Paul says related to having love as an active uh, part of who you are and how you're animated, how you're motivated, how you think and act. Paul says that if you're abounding in love, you'll be ready to see Christ at any time. In fact, he connects holiness with love. You know, typically if, um, if we think about being holy, in, probably for most of us in our minds, we're thinking we're not going to do certain things. We're going to avoid certain things, and that means holiness. This is a whole different take. Paul says if you're abounding in love, you'll be holy. And then the repercussion of that is, my conscience is clear. I'm loving, and because I've given myself to love others, I'm holy. And because I'm holy, my conscience doesn't condemn me. So that if Christ came right now and I'm face to face with Him, or if I'm driving home and I'm killed in an accident and I wake up in heaven, either way, my first response won't be, oh no. You know like your hands in the cookie jar when mom comes into the kitchen and it's not supposed to be. How do you feel? You're not thrilled to see mom. You don't want to see mom right now. Well, for Christians, if we're living lives that we're not supposed to, if our lives are characterized by things that we know Christ has told us not to do, or we're simply not doing the things we know we're called to, how do you feel about seeing Him right then? Right then, when you're doing whatever you're not supposed to be doing. Or when you're living that little, small life where where you're grudgingly serving out love, you know, in little drips to others as you see fit. The implication is you see Jesus and instantly you know I haven't been living the way I'm supposed to be. And my first response is, oh no. Wish I'd been living a little different. The same theme in 1 John 4, 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. In other words, whenever I see Christ, if I'm living life as this abounding, overflowing kind of love, I tend to be holy. I'm putting away things that don't serve God's interests and other people's interests. And therefore, my conscience is clear and I'm good to go at any time. This is freeing and this is liberating. You know, you can't buy a clear conscience. You can't pay for one. You can't get it in the store. Uh, Christ, the blood of Christ, Hebrews, Kent shared in the Lord's Supper last week. The blood of Christ is what cleanses our conscience. We don't pay for our sins. We don't make that atonement. But when we're living a life given to love, it makes us holy so that our conscience stays clean. So that at any moment, we're good to go. Lord, I'm good to go. If you come right now, my conscience is clear. I'm not going to shrink away. I'm going to be ready to see you. What a transformation. We don't want to live lives where we're afraid to see God or die. We want to have a clear conscience so we're good to go. Well, Paul says if we give ourselves to overflowing love, it leads to holiness. We'll be ready to see God at any time in death or at what's called the rapture. Love also does something else. Uh, It prepares us to live life on the earth. Um, 
he says in 4.11, make, your, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you'll behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. This, these verses along with 2 Thessalonians 3 leads us to believe that some of the early Christians in Thessalonica were so jazzed about the return of Christ, believing it could happen at any moment that they quit working, they quit their jobs. And, and in fact, if you, know, if you read history, American history, religious history in the last couple hundred years, there have been other movements in the 1800s into the 1900s. Jesus is coming back on this date. People literally left their houses, left their jobs, went out, sat on hillsides waiting for Christ to return. Well, something like that was probably going on in this group too. So they quit their jobs. And think of the implications of this. <clears throat> they ran out of money. So what did they do when they ran out of money? They're going to their Christian neighbors who are still working. And they become an unnecessary burden on people who are still keeping their day job, still getting a paycheck. Think of also, though, what they look like to their non-Christian friends. They looked lazy, right? Or or non-Christian friends who told them about Jesus' return but were asking them for a handout because they weren't working. How would, you, how would you feel if someone you knew in your life was like that? They don't work, and they come and they hit up on you every day for something to eat or clothes or rent money or whatever. Perfectly able-bodied, could work, but they're not, and they're asking you to take care of them. What would your thought be? <clears throat> and it's not that Christians called to love or called to meet the needs of others, but the problem here would be your need is you need to go to work. You need to be responsible. You know, sometimes Christians are soft-headed, muddled thinkers. Paul never told them to quit their jobs. And in fact, you remember elsewhere, Paul says, we work day and night. We were an example to you guys. In fact, later in 2 Thessalonians, by the way, this is the second Bible verse we made our children memorize. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't get to eat. 2 Thessalonians 3, this is a good verse. That's, That's the example Paul had left for them, and that's what he told them, but... These guys checked out. It was weird. It was, it was stupid. It was foolish. Jesus is going to return. I'm going to quit my day job. No, because you don't know when he's returning. So Paul says this, giving yourself to an overflowing, abounding love, it will make you a responsible person in your time on the earth too. You'll keep your day job. You'll work to be product- productive. You'll provide for your own needs. You'll have extra to provide for the needs of others. But this is hard-headed, appropriate Christianity. These guys leaving their jobs, this was not abounding love. They were, being in, they were being, whether intentional or not, very unloving because they weren't doing right by the people around them. And they were leaving a bad taste in the mouth of the non-Christians around them they may have been sharing Christ with. You know, I believe in a God who's going to return at any time, and brother, can you spare a dime? Uh, these are like the guys at Panhandle... Uh, on the plaza, Kathy and I have met at times, you know. Are you a Christian? Can I have a dime? You know, smell the alcohol on their breath. What a testimony. You know, this is what we're to avoid. So if we have this abounding love as characteristic of our life, it not only prepares us for eternity, it makes us holy, but it also makes us responsible while we're here. It allows us to be hard-headed in the right ways, do the things God's called us to do, provide for our own needs and have additional to provide for the needs of others. So for us, abounding love means things like going to work, going to school, 
providing for our own needs means doing the regular things that people do in their life on the earth. It may sound mundane, but it is deeply spiritual when your motivation is to love God and love others. That's your motivation, going to work, bringing home a paycheck, being responsible. These are high spiritual callings. This is abounding love in action. Another thing Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 3, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Do you see what Paul's doing there? He's basically saying, we're telling you to abound in love, and we want you to do that by following our example. You know it's easy to talk about things. Talk is cheap. It's another to do something. And Paul says two things. He says, listen to the words we tell you and the prayers we give for you. That's one thing. And follow our example. And you know, if you go back to chapter 2, Paul says, we were people who worked hard. We were like a mother to you. We were like a father to you. We were responsible. Our life is characterized by overflowing, abounding love that you've seen in action. And so Paul says, what we're telling you to do We modeled for you. Don't just do what we say, but follow our own example. You know, it's much easier to just say something than it is to do something. And ask yourself this. To the people in my circle of influence, am I an example of love? Could you write this to someone else and say, follow my example? This is where the rubber meets the road. Can you tell someone else to overflow an abounding love and to use you as their example for doing so? And again, I just think most of us can't. That's not where most of us live. If, if that's not you, and if that's not me, ask yourself this. Is there someone in my life that I know now or I've known in the past that's Paul's kind of example of abounding love? Have you known someone like that? And then if there is, What did that look like? Because you can use them as your model and as your example. We didn't see Paul face to face. We read his letter and we get some sense of what that looked like. But is there somebody flesh and bone that you've known in your life that you say they're an example of this kind of overflowing love, of a life given to loving others? And then think about what that looked like for them and let them be your Paul, let them be your example. Aspire to live the kind of loving life that you saw displayed in that person. It helps to put flesh on that, to say this is what it looks like. This is a person I know who lives this out day by day. Someone I can pattern my own life out after. If you read anything on the early church, the life of the early church, you know that the early church was characterized by this kind of abounding, excelling, overflowing love. So, a couple examples. Think of Acts 4. Uh, The early church in Jerusalem, people were selling everything they had and giving the money to the apostles so that the needs of everyone in the church was met. Some people use this as a proof text for communism. It's not. People still own their, their property or their accounts or whatever. They chose to dispose of them as they saw fit. But they were generous to a fault towards each other because they were motivated by love. And the same theme in Acts chapter 6, the early church was feeding the widows amongst them. The church was taking care of the widows. There was no welfare system. There was no state fund that at 60 or 65 
you were taken care of. The church did this. The church was characterized by overflowing love towards those in its own midst and those outside. Listen to this too from Clement. He lived around 100 AD. Listen to what he says. Of, Of the typical Christian in the church in his day, he said, he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he doesn't complain. That's the early church. But that continues. If you read Justin Martyr in the second century, he says this of Christians in the church. We used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else. Or excuse me, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth. And this is probably at a practical level where most of us in the West, the profitable economically still, compared to the rest of the world, prosperous West, probably where most of us live. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. This was the early church. Last in the third century, last of these examples, when one of the plagues that used to ravage Europe primarily, but all of the world in ancient times, in the 300s when a plague went through the Roman Empire, literally the the non-Christians were throwing their family members out into the streets to try to avoid getting the plague themselves and dying. And it was the Christians who were ministering to these folks even though for many of them it meant they caught it, of course, and died for the same reason. But it was Christians in the early church who were taking care of these people, knowing that it could cost them their own life. That's still what they were doing. So the early church, they they took heed to Jesus' call to love and to love radically. And they took Paul's advice to live this overflowing or abounding kind of loving life. You see it. It's there. What does it mean for you and me today to live a radical life of love and generosity towards others, close and far? Uh, Back to 1 John briefly. John says this in 3.17, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Um, We should be given towards meeting the physical and financial needs of those folks around us. We prayed for the rescue mission earlier. The rescue mission, you know, is a, is a Christian agency that's there to do just this. And churches across Topeka, and, and I think actually wider than that, along with Lion and Lamb, support the rescue mission because this is one of the ways that we can practically meet the physical needs of others. Some Christians, some not. But if it's food or clothing, if it's... Um, temporary housing, you name it, the rescue mission is there. It's a great, it's, it's really an outstanding work. And that's why the church, Lion and Lamb, contributes to that monthly. It's why we serve at the rescue mission when there, there are needs there to, to help meet. But simply taking care of the physical and financial needs of those around us. People who have financial needs in the church, I hope you know this, that uh, as a church we try to be generous. Sometimes we're generous to a fault. We've given money away to people in the past in which you scratch your head afterwards and say, well, 
Uh, we erred on the side of being generous. You know, it wasn't spent well. But we would rather do that than be small and measure out generosity in that little way. We want to be generous and abounding in love towards others. And so when there are needs in the church, we do take seriously meeting the financial needs of others in our midst. Very mundane and small things, like when people move, we show up to help them move. When people have babies or when people lose loved ones, the church takes it on to provide meals for about a week at a time. These are small things, but guys, they communicate what we're supposed to be doing because we're saying to other people, you're important and we want to serve you and we want to be there for you with whatever's going on in your life. If we are not characterized by love as a church, either this small piece of the the larger body or the church in general, what claim do we have left on Christ to the world around us? If he says they'll know you're Christians by your love and no, no one knows we're Christians, what claim do we have publicly as Christians? There's not much left for us. You know, at an emotional and spiritual level too, um, here's something you can do for others. Abounding love. You can pray for others. You can pray. It costs you almost nothing. It costs you a little bit of time. But if you believe prayer is meaningful, it is one of the most meaningful things you can do for anyone you know whether they're a Christian in the church or not, to pray for others. You know, when someone tells me that I've been prayed for, it's like money in the bank to me. It's more valuable than my bank account. Not that I will pray for you. That's nice. I have prayed for you. That's better. I will pray for you may be a nice saying. I have prayed for you. That's meaningful. We can pray for each other. And we know each other well enough. Pray for the areas we're weak in. Pray when there's a need that we don't know how to face. We should be praying for each other. That's overflowing love. Mundane things too, guys. This doesn't have to be. This doesn't have to cost you a lot. Sometimes things like uh, we talked last week, speaking the truth in love. This is huge. Being willing to talk to other, each other sometimes about the hard things in life, things that a person may not want to hear, but you know they need to for their good. Speaking the truth in love. That's loving. That's overflowing, excelling love. But other times, just encouraging people with your words. That's overflowing love. Giving to others. The the church doesn't have to corporately do these things. If you know someone has a need and you can meet it, you should be doing it. As individuals, we should be doing that. What does it look like for us to share this abounding, overflowing love with those outside the church? A little broader spectrum. How about at least this? How about praying for opportunities to share the gospel with the people that you know, that you work with, that you come in contact with? Most of us are carrying the gospel like a book underneath our sweater. It's there and it's not seen or read or heard by anyone else. You know, the most loving thing you can do for anyone who doesn't know Christ is to tell them about Christ. The most loving thing you can do is to share Christ with others, bar none. And I know there's issues about when and how and You can pray about that. But we should have a disposition. If love is our motivation, then we should have a disposition that I'm looking for those opportunities to share Christ with those who don't yet know Him. If I care one ounce for someone else, wouldn't I want to tell them that there's such a thing as eternal life or eternal separation from God and all goodness forever? You know, if the rest of the world you knew are lemmings running over a cliff, wouldn't you want to turn to the lemming next to you and say, There's a cliff over here. 
We should stop. We should reconsider our course, maybe. This is the most loving thing you can do to share Christ with those who don't know Him. And to pray. And Again, I'm not talking about being obnoxious. God, give me those opportunities so I can share with others about you. Being a good neighbor. This could mean things like not being loud when it's late at night. This could be things like cleaning the trash up out of your yard. You know what I mean? Just being considerate of others. Those who you don't get along with, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5.44. You can pray for them too. Luke 6.27, do good to those who hate you. Most Christians I know, myself included, are rather carnal. So if someone does wrong by me, you know what my first instance is? Got to get them. You know, retaliation or cool withdrawal. I'm better at that, frankly. So, but if you ever see it, sorry. You know, I, I just back away. You know, go to myself. Just leave you alone. Uh, that's totally carnal, though. Jesus says that if you are characterized by his kind of love, you do good to those who don't do good to you. So just like giving ourselves permission to be inconvenienced, when someone doesn't do right by us, we should tell ourselves we're called to bless them, to pray for them, to do good for them. That We've got to remind ourselves of that or we won't do it. That's what we're called to. And you know, this is the thing. We think we're going to give someone else what they deserve, but that's not what we want, certainly. Lord, spare me what I deserve. We want to be treated lovingly by others. God says to us, He's given us Himself and His love, and He says, you turn around and give that away. What you freely have received, you freely give. And when you and I love others, even those who are unlovely to us, hurtful, hateful, you're the winner. Whatever they do with your prayers or your love to them, you're the winner. You, you become more Christ-like. You become free of bitter enmity and, and the sense of vengeance and I'm going to get them. And You're free when you show love to those who don't show love to you. Think of this too, this definition, 1 Corinthians 13, and just ask yourself, does it, is this what my life looks like? Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians' neighbors right down the coast in Corinth. He said, love is patient. I'm willing to be patient or long-suffering, actually, the Greek term. I'm, I'm willing to wait long. Love is kind. It's thoughtful towards others. Love is not jealous. This is huge. When God blesses someone else, are you okay? If God blesses someone else and not you, are you okay with that? Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It's not all about me. Life is bigger than me. God's at work in more lives than mine. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love isn't rude. Love is thoughtful towards others. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Are, Are you a firecracker waiting to be lit? That's not loving. It's not provoked. When someone's not doing right, I don't blow up in anger. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love overlooks sins committed against us. And again, when you lovingly overlook the sins committed against you, you win because you're free from bitterness. You're free inside between you and the Lord. You don't build up and harbor all this crud inside you that eats away. When you overlook those things, you win. You stay spiritually healthy. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. 
We don't rejoice when bad things happen to bad people. Because if love is our motive, we want the best for other people, no matter who or what they are. Love bears all things. It puts up with things. It puts up with things, not nice things, for a long time. This is, again, about not measuring out. If I say, Lord, how much love is enough? My focus is, how little can I give? But here, bears all things. Again, it's this thought of it overflows. It's not supposed to be measured out slightly. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the kind of love Paul's calling to us. That's the kind of love Christ demonstrated for us. Do your family members think you're loving? Do your parents think you're loving? Do your children think you're loving? Does your spouse think you're loving? In other words, do the people who know you best, do they think you're characterized by love? You could do a dangerous thing. You could ask them. And if they said, not really, you could ask them, what areas would love look like in my life from your perspective? This would be a good thing. How about this? <clears throat> do those people who know you, maybe a little, little bit broader circle, the people you work with, go to school with, etc., do they know you're a Christian because of your love? If Jesus says, my own will be identified by the larger world by their characteristic of love, do people know we're Christians by our love? For most of us, these, these are probably uh, convicting because we're probably not as loving as we should be. I mean, that's just my expectation for myself and probably for you too. Assuming that, we can ask God to help us to be more loving, to be like Christ, to take on that mindset that we just tell ourselves it's okay to be inconvenient. When someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm not going to cuss them out in my head. I'm going to pray for them. Or when whoever does whatever to me, I'm going to tell myself ahead of time, I'm going to pray for them right then, right then. I'm going to bless them in Christ's name right then. I'm going to provide for this overflowing love on the front side of things. Paul calls us and he prays for those first Christians to this abounding, overflowing life of loving service to others. And if you give yourself to it on the upside, just in a very self-serving way, you're ready to see Christ at any time. And you have the right kind of motivation to live a responsible, productive life here on the earth. When we give ourselves to love others too, think about this, seek their good, provide for their needs, we are most like Christ. And the flip side of this is, when we serve others in Christ's name, we've served Him. Let me close with Matthew 25. Brief theological note, Matthew 25, in my understanding, is written to a setting that includes Jews and Gentiles, not the church. But the principle is true. King Jesus returns to the earth. He separates, he divides the nations between the goats and the, and the sheep. He's going to bring some into his own kingdom. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? 
The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least you did it to me. You know, is this incredible or what? When you get to heaven and Jesus rewards you for your faithful, loving service on the earth, all those acts of kindness or service or love you showed to other people, Jesus is going to say, thanks for doing that for me. When you love others in Christ's name, he says you're loving him. And if we take that as a disposition of our mind, when we see other people, we see an opportunity to love Christ or to serve Christ. And he'll reward that as acts of service done for him. I love this. Loving others here, it lets us live well. It lets us live freely. And Christ is going to turn around at the end of the age and he's going to reward you for loving him. This is cool. It's in our own benefit to to give up bitterness, resentments, unforgiveness. These things are unworthy of Christians. We've been freely given forgiveness and love. We should turn around and dispense those things to those around us. They'll be better for it, and so will we. Let's pray. Lord, John said elsewhere that you are love. It is your key characteristic, the one you identify yourself as specifically. Father, the more fully we display love towards you and towards others, the more fully we bear your mark, the more closely we resemble our Father and our Savior. Lord, I know that we have let go of this high call to an overflowing, abounding love that we tend to measure love in how little we can do, how much we can keep. Father, I pray you'd show us in all the ways that matter to you the areas in our life in which we can put away small, mean ways of seeing things, of life and you and others. Lord, enlarge our minds, enlarge our souls to be as loving as you mean us to be. Lord, help us to remember how fully you've loved us, giving us your Son, so that out of that abundance that our own cup is being filled up to overflowing by you, Lord, help us to spill up and over to everyone around us. And Lord, both for our own benefit in all the right ways, may the world around us know that we belong to you. May we be identified by yours through our love. In Jesus' name, amen.